0: My name's Glenn. If you're uh, visiting with us online, great to be with you this morning, or in-house for that matter. I'm um, one of the pastor's elders here at the Rock Church. We're going to dive directly in this morning, so I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, you will notice on screen we have a sermon title for you today called First Things First. And uh, this, this is a, more or less a... It, well, it is. It's a one-off sermon, a one-off message in between the Romans 8 series that we just finished and what uh, Rudy and I want to begin next week. So it gives us a little bit extra time to prepare for that. I might give you a little bit of a hint about that as we go through our message for today. But the other thing was just the simple thought that um, as I've been thinking about coming out of that series and where we're at as a church family right now, um, for a number of reasons. Well, the pandemic, COVID, hopefully coming out of that from the perspective of at least being able to gather more in person, as a church, but also this uh, renewed vision, this revisioning process that we're going through as a church, um, here within our building downtown, the Ledge Community Coffee House, or what operated as that up until January 1st, and going forward. So it's a bit of a strange season. So I felt, Rudy and I felt, uh, a message just to more or less refocus us, get us set on the foundational aspects of what it means to be the church going forward before we start envisioning things, which is great, that maybe we should have a look at God's Word related to that. And so that's the purpose of this morning's message. Uh, Recently, I was rereading a book by uh, a man by the name of Mark Sayers, a guy that I quite appreciate. I I came to know who he was maybe four or five years ago through a podcast called This Cultural Moment, and particularly a series that he did Uh, that he was the keynote speaker at, called the Portland Sessions. So guess where they were located? Yes, Portland, Oregon, right? And uh, he's part of a a consortium of pastors, which I really appreciated as I got to learn about them. Uh, All reasonably young, solid preacher pastors, uh, all planted or leading churches in the most progressive cities in the world. So cities like the city that he's in in Australia, and I'm forgetting the name of that city right now, Uh, but also Portland, Seattle, yes, Vancouver, places like that. And what I really appreciated about him and about some of these other pastors that that were speaking on this podcast is they're in these incredibly progressive cities, but they're there because they love those cities. And they love the people in the city. And and so they're not at all ever about us versus them, the church versus the culture. They're not about that. And so I was rereading one of these books uh, uh, recently. It's called Disappearing Church really encouraging, right? Uh, I believe it was written in 2016, uh, and we, as part of our church planning network, were encouraged as pastors to read it. Why? Because, well, it's a good book. It was a bit of a wake-up call to not only pastors and leaders, but to the church that, listen, we're, we're living, if you, by the way, haven't got the news flash or the, the news release, in a post-post-Christian culture. We are. And so they, they, he wrote this book, and, and it wasn't so much Um, to prepare us for the worst that he wrote this book. It wasn't so much, I'm writing this because, oh my goodness, things are terrible. No, it it, well, maybe. But but it was more about, okay, as the church, how are we going to approach evangelism, reaching the lost in, in a world where things have really, really changed? And again, that's why I felt it was so important for us to maybe talk about the things I want to talk about with you from the scripture this morning, because... That's where we are, in Squamish. That, that's where we are right now as a church, revisioning what we're going to do. One of the reasons why we wanted to have a cafe live music venue during the week and be open as a ministry center to the city of Squamish was to be a different church, to say, hey, we're here, but we're coming to you to bless you and, and, and to speak to you and serve you and love you. And so we want to be able to continue to do that. So there's another book, which I'll highlight in a second, that I read of his... Uh, so first book was Disappearing Church. I'll tell you about the second one after we read the Scripture for today because it's really the second book that inspired me to come to this word for you today. So read with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Paul writing, that same guy that we read in Romans 8. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you again as we prayed upstairs earlier before this gathering this morning. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine. Thank you for this fresh day. Thank you for this beautiful, wonderful community that we live in. Lord, I pray as we've been praying for 13, 14, maybe 15 years, Lord, would you break all of our hearts for this community? Lord, would you break our hearts for the lost in this community? Lord, I pray that as we move forward and today through this message and this word that you've given to us, I pray that you would prepare us in a fresh and a new way to do just that, to love Squamish. As hard as that may be sometimes for some of us, but Lord, that's why you put us here. That's the reason why we're here. Lord, I pray that I, as well as everyone else, would remember that. So I pray afresh that you would just guide us and lead us today and encourage our hearts. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So as Mark Sayers opens his latest book, written, I believe, in 2020, called Reappearing Church. Amen? I mean, disappearing, now reappearing, which is, I think, where we're at today. He tells a very interesting story. It happened, I believe, in uh, 2019. He's a pastor in Australia. I forget the name of the the city town. I'm sorry. But uh, anyway, it was Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. He preaches to two services to his church. It's an awesome day. Anybody who knows Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, come on, it's the highlight, right? Christmas is awesome. But Resurrection Sunday is the day. It's the day. And so he preaches, and it's awesome. And he comes out of the church after an hour of greeting people and great fellowship and just a reminder of what a wonderful day that is. And he goes outside to the parking lot. He sits down in his car, and he looks up at the wall beside at the side of the church, facing one of the main thoroughfares in that part of the community, and there's a white sheet covering something on the wall. And he says, well, that wasn't there this morning. And so he goes over, and he peeks behind it, and he sees the words, PG-13 here, so I'll just say, blank off God. And then he sees a note that's attached to the sheet, and he reads it, and it's a note written by the priest from the Catholic Church across the street saying, yeah, sorry, uh, we did our best to try to wash it off for you. Uh, We couldn't, so we put this sheet up. I mean, he notes in his book, I mean, how awesome is that? the Catholic Church, people that we wave to but maybe don't really have much fellowship with on a Sunday, but they did that for us? It's pretty cool. So he admits that at first he was angry. Like, I mean, like this really upset him. He he was looking at this and he's thinking, well, I mean, his first thought was, well, there you go. That's where we're at today in this culture. Now listen, He's like in his early forties. His podcast, if you listen to him, he's a he's a cultural theologian who's really in tune to it. And he doesn't normally think that way about the culture or preach that. But that was his heart at that moment, and he caught himself, and he said, "Hold on, that's not cool." And then he just he just thought to himself, you know, it, it, it probably it was probably just some young guy who's a little angry you know, got some spray paint, and and either thought he was being funny or just expressing his anger, and he put that on there, and he confessed his attitude, and he went home and got some white paint, came back and painted the wall. Now, listen, this happened, he wrote this book, Reappearing Church, before COVID. He wrote it near the end of the last presidency in the United States, if you can just which not only impacted the United States but Canada and the rest of the world, and specifically Australia and New Zealand culturally and politically and so it was a very, very divided world when he wrote Disappearing Church," but also reappearing Church and that was the point of the book it 's a fantastic book if you wanted to read it Now add to that what any I think dedicated follower of Christ has seen in the past. 10 to 15 years, especially, I I know you're all pretty young and you're pretty smart and you've seen this, even some of us older people here, you know, have seen this, obviously. Um, Especially we've seen this, a massive shift in our culture, a massive shift, not just away from Judeo-Christian values when it comes to the unborn gender identity, marriage, and so on. But it's also this. If at one point for maybe about 10 or 15, 20, 25 years there, we were perceived as the church as just those, those poor, you know, you know, people who still believed in some kind of God in the sky, you know. You know, we, we were basically considered harmless. You know, as long as they stay in their churches and in their homes and in their homeschool groups and places like that, fine. That's not the case anymore. We live in a world today where, if you, you haven't noticed, it's a world for the most part that believes we're part of the problem. What we believe is part of the problem. And so that's a problem. It really is. It's a problem about how do we face that? How do we, how do we deal with those issues? Because they're important. But again, we want to have, have a Christ-like heart about it. And that's what Mark gets at in his book, which I think is awesome. And so again, I just want to remind you, in the midst of cancel culture and the recent Bill C-4 in Canada, this is why I felt it would be important to look at this scripture today. Because I think as Christians, today in the church, at least what I'm seeing, not so much here at The Rock, but I'm seeing it and I think other pastors are seeing it, I think there's one of two directions we could head. One direction we could head and I'm going to point to my left. I'm not trying to be political here. What? It's your right. Um, but, but, but we could go down the road of, quote, the progressive ideology. We could say, hold on. You know, it's too costly to be a Christian in today's world and to believe those things. And quite frankly, maybe we're wrong. And, and it would be one thing to go that way, right? Right? The other way that we could go, there's actually a few, but one that I thought of is we could go to the the way of being so fearful of what's going on out there, and I've said this before, that we just go dead silent. We literally do just hunker down here on Sunday. You know, we hug each other and it's great, and we talk about Jesus here and sin and things like that, or we do that in our homes, hopefully, or in our small groups. But that's it? That's the other possibility that could happen to us. And so that's why I wanted to look at this text today, just to reground us on something that's really important, what Paul calls of first importance, or what I'm calling first things first. It's not that there aren't second things and third things. There are let's get focused. So let's look at his words for today and dive in a little bit. First two verses we'll put on screen for you. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, in Greek, this is a, a, uh, a word that would refer to brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Many of you, if you know the history of the city of Corinth, right, in the Greco-Roman world, you will know, and again, this is the thing about our culture today, we think we have evolved so much, right? We think that, that, you know, when it comes to progressive ideology, particularly, uh, there's this idea that, well, you know, there, were, there are these dinosaurs out there who believe the Bible and believe these things and all the rest of it, and we're, we're, we're a little bit, you know, more evolved, and so we believe, you know, these values today. Which, well, hold on a second. Do some research. The city of Corinth, in the days of Paul and the church, was an incredibly secular, humanistic, progressive city. This church exploded in that community and did very, very well. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, it it was basically a, a culture where it was anything goes, sexually, socially, politically, et cetera. It wasn't, it's 2,000 years ago. It wasn't that vastly different, and yet we seem to think maybe it was. We know that Paul also wrote actually three letters to the church. We only have two. He mentions in, uh, I believe it's 2 Corinthians, about the letter, another letter that he wrote, which is not 1 Corinthians. So we know he wrote three letters to this church overall. And it, it should signal to us something, and especially if you look at all of his writings, he thought very highly of this church. He had a lot to say to this church. He was very involved in this church. Now, I know that some preachers like to point this out. You've probably heard this. I think I've done it in the past, and I have repented of this. Uh, But sometimes this church is, or the letters of Paul are always suggested to be corrective, you know, because this is a church that was just out of hand. You know, they weren't doing things correctly, that they were especially um, getting carried away when it came to certain spiritual gifts, and that's true. But I would disagree with that at this point, having restudied those letters and especially looking at some of the context of what we read today. If you go back into the beginning of 1 Corinthians, it won't be on screen for you this morning, but uh, I'll just read you verses 4 and 5. And this is after a a traditional uh, welcome or an introduction by Paul where he's basically saying, I love you, I miss you, you, you saints in Christ in Corinth, one of his typical introductions. He says these words, I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge. And so the overall sense I I believe we should take or get from the attention Paul's giving to this church in his letters, and, and frankly by the length of his letters, is that he thought very highly of a couple of things. Their testimony as a church and their work as a church, that they were doing. And so his, his purpose for writing to them was, yeah, yeah, to, to set some things in order and correct a few things, but also to protect their testimony as a church. And so that their testimony would, what? Flourish. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't detract from the name of Jesus and, and how the church should be seen. It's also important to note, right after the verses that I read for you, Paul digs in right away. (laughs) He he does think very highly of them. He does want them to flourish. He wants to correct them, though, so that they will be able to and remind them of, of, and by the time he gets to the end in chapter 15, where we're at, of what's of first importance. But it's interesting to note that right after the verses I read to you in chapter 1, he tells them that he believes he has heard there's divisions amongst them, right? Well, again, how this worked was the elders of the church would write letters to Paul and they would be asking him some theological questions uh, to, to answer so they could preach and teach the people well. But they'd also be saying, hey, Paul, we got some, we got some issues here. We got some people doing this some people doing that. And not only that, Paul, we got, we got some very divisive people in our midst. And so he writes about that and he speaks about that. Well, that's kind of sad, isn't it? Amen? <laughs> it is very sad but it's true. And I believe from my experience in my whole church life, not so much here or including here, it's universal. For 2,000 years, it seems to be the case. It it seems to be, and I, I know from many other church plants in Canada that I've been part of the network of and our own church, that it seems, it's interesting how a church can get planted and people can be so excited about the vision and the mission of where we're gonna go and what we're gonna do, and we're gonna make Jesus known, and we're gonna love one another. And and you know what? Those things actually happen and flourish, and people come to that, and people like it's like people do actually love one another, and people actually serve one another, and people actually give and actually go. And then something happens. We're human. Something happens. Division does appear. It's subtle the way it starts at first, but it appears. And the question has to be, why? Why? Why when things are good? That's interesting. It always happens when things are good. Why does that happen, do you think? Well, I'll cut to the chase for you it's the reason why Rudy and I will be working hard on this new miniseries we want to start next week. We'll be getting into it, into the very subject. I'll tell you why it happens. It's called the enemy. He's called the devil. And here's the thing. He doesn't want that to happen. That is the absolute last thing that he wants to see happen. It is a group of people who call themselves Christians to come together, love one another, serve one another, go into the community, bless the community with smiles on their face. That's the last thing he wants to see happen. That means war in his demented mind. That's the only hint I'm going to give you about next Sunday as to where we're going to go. So now, listen, I want to direct your attention back to verses 1 and 2 in our text today. And look at the first few words that Paul says. He says this, Now I remind you. Hmm. (sighs) Which is exactly what I'm hoping to do today. Is to remind you, to remind me, us, of these things. Again, it's interesting when you read Paul's letters, he does this quite often. He's consistent in the way that he preaches and teaches, which is probably a good thing, don't you think? He's very consistent. But he speaks about this issue, about divisions, but also about reminding, reminding, reminding. He's rather repetitive about that. Galatians is a really good example of that. We'll show you on screen. In the beginning of Galatians, after he's done, again, a wonderful introduction, I love you, you're amazing, great church. But then in verse 6, look at these words. I am astonished. Again, he's received a letter from the elders, and he's saying, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He goes on, not that there is another gospel, but there are some, obviously amongst them, who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then from there, he goes on to remind them of what the gospel is. I love those words. Not that there is another gospel. Like, like it, 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 He's so focused and so clear. So it's interesting that he has the same reminder in mind in both letters. The reminder is about the gospel, period. Not about how, how poorly they're serving the poor. Not about how a bunch of other things that he deals with related to division and, and the way that they're gathering the church improperly, which we'll see later as we go to communion. No, it's about the gospel. The way that Paul both corrects and shepherds is to bring us back to that which, as we will see shortly in his opinion, is of first importance. There is nothing in Paul's mind that is more important, first of all, than the gospel. So again, he says, now I remind you, brothers, in chapter 15 of Corinthians, of the gospel I preach to you. So the way that Paul reminds them is interesting. He starts with what he does in these first few verses is he starts with teaching about what the gospel does first for the Christian, and then he goes to what the gospel is. Now, you would think, I would think if I was going to do this, I would would start with what the gospel is right? And so then you know what the gospel is, and and now, okay, here's what what we should do because of the gospel. But again, let's remember, he's talking about reminding them, right? So his, his assumption is, you should know what the gospel is, because that's what you started out with, and you did great. Not because of your own wisdom and strength and tricky ideas on how to do church. That was the gospel. So first we need to note that it is the gospel that Paul, listen, preached. It was the gospel that he preached. And so we know that also, and Galatians brings this out, that there were questions at one point about the gospel that Paul was preaching, right? Because in Galatia, they did—they were like, well, who is this Paul guy, right? Who is this Paul guy, right? And And so... There was some question about that, because in Galatia, the idea is they were bringing in a false gospel. Some of you will remember when we went through the book of Galatians, the Judaizers were bringing in a Jesus plus gospel, right? So a Jesus plus works gospel, where the idea was, yeah, yeah, it's great, great. Grace is great. Faith alone in Jesus is great. The the cross, you got it. Everything's great. Hey, but listen, guys, speaking specifically to the men, you know that you need to be circumcised. Right, so, so their point was, not just that, you know that you need to have Jesus and the keeping of the law. So it was a Jesus plus Jesus and gospel. And so at one point, Paul actually had to go to Jerusalem, uh, to the, the the mothership, as I like to call it, to where the most of the apostles were, and, and because people were questioning, wait, wait a second, we know who you used to be, like, you're that, that guy that... that, that Pharisee of the Pharisees that, that was sent to destroy the church, and you were killing Christians, and, and now you're preaching this gospel. So they tried to undermine it. So he goes to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and, and to compare notes and, quite frankly, get their authorization that he is preaching the same gospel. And that's exactly what happens. They confirm that, yeah, Paul, you got it right. You got it completely right so Paul goes back to Galatia and other places, and he says, I preached that gospel to you, and look, you received it. It's that gospel that I preached to you, and you received it. And that is the process for you and I, and we've learned this in Romans 8 and before, for our initial salvation. The word, the gospel, is preached or shared with us, and then it is received and believed, and we become a Christian. So secondly, we see a very encouraging result here of receiving and believing the gospel, right? One example of what it does for us, or it should anyway, and that is despite our circumstances or the chaos all around us, in these days, it gives us the power and the strength to stand. Not to fade away. Not to lose hope. Certainly not to become judgmental and critical. But to stand for the gospel. The gospel is what empowers us to continue to believe, friends. Despite the persecution and rejection. But also to stand up to our adversary who is the devil. We do not struggle against what? flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Next week, we'll get into it. I'm giving away too much of a hint there. It's crazy. So despite that, but also to stand against our adversary, and and frankly, also this, just to keep going. Honestly, like recently, do you just... <laughs> how many times in the last two years, especially the last few months, have you not said, Lord Jesus, please come quickly? Am I the only one? I know Janice has. gives us the strength to stand, the gospel does, and to stay on mission with Jesus, which is to make disciples who make the disciples right now here in Squamish. So thirdly, it is by the gospel that, look at his words, it's by the gospel that you are being saved. Now again, this is a simple follow-up from Romans 8 and everything we've been studying about sanctification, but that's it, right? We, we know that we are saved initially, we are justified, we are saved from the penalty of sin. But right now, we need the gospel every day to save us from the power of sin in this world. Why? Because our adversaries are at work. Not just in the sons of disobedience, but in us, on us, trying to get us off mission, trying to get us discouraged, trying to get us looking at each other and criticizing each other and finding fault with one another. You're not the only ones. <laughs> this is why we need the gospel. is to stand, to be encouraged, and to continue, to continue to grow in our faith and walk with Jesus Christ. And then Paul, listen, look, he adds a couple of provisos. There's a couple of provisos here that are really important. The first is, you've got to hold fast to it. <laughs> you have to hold fast to the word of God. To just the word of God. Not the word of your favorite podcaster, not the word of authors, and the word of God. To what it says, truthfully, in plain language, and to doing what it says. We have to hold fast to that, is what Paul says. That's a proviso. We do not waver. We do not allow ourselves to be led astray or believe in another gospel. Listen, in their day, there was a primary other gospel. It was a Jesus plus works gospel, right? That's been around for 2,000 years. There are many other gospels available today. Many. They're evolving, they're the same. They're based on breaking down and deconstructing the Word of God and not holding fast to the Word of God. And so there's many, many, many of those. And so he then says, sadly, the second proviso is, unless you believed in vain. This is a double-edged sword, this phrase here, in the original language. It it, it applies to the Christian who's, who's going to... Allow themselves to be weakened, not hold fast to the Word of God, and and allow themselves to be influenced by the enemy to the point where, in their walk and their faith for the rest of their lives, they're completely ineffective for the sake of the gospel and the mission of Jesus Christ. Which also means, in their their own life, it's not going to be the Christian life that it's supposed to be that we studied about in Romans 8. But this also means that there are those who have believed in vain, meaning they didn't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They believed in a gospel of what's in it for me. This all sounds good. This is great. These people are really nice, you know? They really are, until I get to know them, right? They're awesome. It becomes the kind of thing where it's just another one of those spiritualities that I can tag onto my my spiritual tool belt and and will help me get up every morning and go and live a life of prosperity or whatever it might be. Here's the problem with that. Every one of those Gospels, false Gospels, will eventually let you down. And you will have believed in vain and you will walk away. That's what Paul's getting at here. And so it's actually incredibly serious. He now goes on to encourage them and you and I about what the gospel actually is again. Here's the reminder. He says in verses 3 and 4, here it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel. He can say it in two verses. We'll get back to that. So Paul now at this point wants to drill down to the absolute foundation of what the gospel is, about what our, our, our justification by faith in Jesus alone is all about. And it's right here in these verses. It's what he calls of first importance. He starts by reminding them it is what he received. Now there's some question here. Like again, They brought him up to Jerusalem. Why? Because some people were thinking, like, where did you get this gospel? You could not have learned this gospel from the other apostles because you haven't really met them. So where did you get this gospel, Paul? Right? And so the, the Jewish leaders also in Jerusalem knew who this guy was. So they had their questions too. I mean, you remember, like, he was the guy who was killing Christians, and he's on the road to Damascus. Boom, Jesus, an apostle. And Paul declares from that point forward, actually three years later, he begins Making the point that listen, i didn't get my gospel from any other man. I had a direct download from Jesus Christ himself, and he repeats that often and so this is the this is the gospel that he received when he says this directly from Jesus himself and so now he lays out in very simple terms what that gospel is, so I'm wondering based on that and based on what I've just read for you, could you do that? Could you? I, I know a lot of you. I, 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 think, I think you could get pretty close. I sometimes think I could get really close. right? But, but that's the point of also looking at this. I, I saw a Barna survey from le- literally two years ago, and 75% of Christians in the United States who were surveyed, according to Barna, were not close. <laughs> okay, it's just a survey. You could just put that aside, right? They were not close. They really could not articulate it well. So let's see what Paul has to say about what the gospel is. He says three things. First, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So how interesting is it he doesn't say a thing about the virgin birth. He doesn't say a thing about all the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah at Christmas. He doesn't say anything about his first 30 years basically lived in obscurity but, you know, his mom and his dad, and he's a carpenter, none of, none of that stuff. He doesn't say anything about his ministry of three and a half years, which, listen, these things are not insignificant. They're very significant. But he doesn't say anything about those things related to the gospel. That's significant when you think about it. So nothing about casting out demons, miracles. They're all awesome, right? No, first, Christ died, let me personalize it, for your in my sins. So I think two significant facts in this statement make it really good news. Jesus didn't just die. I mean, listen, anyone can believe that. Every skeptic in this world who's going to, just for a moment, just to make you feel good, me feel good, is going to look at you and go, okay, listen, I, I, I think there's enough historical evidence to say that, listen, a guy by the name of Jesus lived. He was a Jewish rabbi. Some people thought this about him, you know, and so forth. But listen, he lived and he died. Got it. No problem. There's absolutely no problem that people have with that. But then there's this question, wait a second. He died for our sins? Hold on, back off. Where are you going with that? Right? Right? I believe there's a perception of many in our world today. I've met people like this. I actually used to think this way, personally, being raised Roman Catholic. I I, I thought this was probably true. I thought that basically it was going to boil down to the good things that I do in my life are going to outweigh the bad, right? The scales of Glenn's justice are going to be awesome, right? Because I'm basically a nice guy. I'm basically, I mean, doesn't everyone on the planet think that? Right? It's a, it, I know this might sound like a ridiculous illustration, but just think about it. Because it, it's, it, it's not logical even in human logic and reasoning, is it? I mean, imagine you're on trial for murder. Pretty serious charge, right? You're on, uh, in trial, and, and the judge says, do you have anything to say in your defense before I you know, hammer my gavel down and send you away for life? And you go, well, well yeah. Um, <clears throat> what about my 10 years serving the homeless at Union Gospel Mission? Come on. Come on, you know? Ridiculous? Why? Because murder's really, really bad? Well, sure. But Jesus did say in the Sermon on the Mount that if you're angry at your brother or sister, same thing in God's eyes. Listen, the point is this. God is perfectly holy and righteous, and what he requires... To be in his presence is the same. Holiness and perfection. I don't have it, you don't have it, apart from whom? Jesus Christ. And, and apart from the fact that he died for our sins. This other thought that I had related to that is pretty simple. It's like when, when we get out there to share the gospel, what, what is often the way we do that? Isn't it, isn't it more like, you know, Jesus wants to be your friend? And here's a good one. Jesus loves you. This is true. When was the last time you or I actually said to someone, let me start at the first place? Jesus Christ died for your sins. (laughs) That's the gospel. That is the gospel. Jesus Christ took the punishment on the cross in his body for the sins of the world, your sins, my sins, all of them, past, present, and future. That's the gospel, point one. Secondly, listen, look, that he was buried. Okay, I, I got I to admit, I'm reading this, and I, I, I went into a couple of commentaries, so I was like, okay, that's very short, right? Like, I, I know that's true, that he was buried. And again, every skeptic in the world be going, yeah, that's what you do with dead people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you bury them, right? Well, unless you want, anyway, um, no question about that. But we can fly right by that and go, hold on, what's the point of that? Well, I, as I think about it and, and look into it, the, the bottom line is, I mean, it, it's also part of the proof, which Paul is going to get into in a minute, but part of the proof is, is that he was really dead. Okay, they, they, they believed that. The apostles believed that. Uh, they believed it when they, they took a tomb, right? And, and they put him in it, and then it was sealed, They believed it, the Roman authorities believed it, but they were afraid the disciples were going to come and steal his body because he said he would rise on the third day. They believed he was dead and that's why he was buried. And so it's important that we know that. There's a couple of other really, really cool pictures that come from that. We know that Jesus took our sins on his body on the cross. We know that. But the other truth is this, he buried them. You buried your sins, once and for all. Amen. And second to that, it's a wonderful picture, again, of our sanctification, isn't it? We, we know that when we come to Christ and we're saved from the penalty of our sins, we're, our old Glenn, our old whoever, is dead, gone, technically, positionally in Christ. Been buried in Christ. Now the reality is, every day of your life and my life, we continue to put to death the old self by burying it. Right. So it's a beautiful picture, and that's why it's important. That's why it's the gospel. That's why it it, it has to be part of your gospel presentation of mine. Thirdly, and obviously, we know this one is true, and this is what Paul will spend the rest of our text today confirming, where he says that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So this fact is not only according to the Scriptures in the Old Testament, but it's according to what would be the Scripture, which is always the Scripture, which is the words of Jesus, when he three times told his disciples, at least that we know of, hey, here's what's going to happen. They're going to kill me. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die. And then I will rise again on the third day. So Jesus was not... Resuscitated as skeptics believe, if, if, if at all he came back or showed up again, is because he was resuscitated, or it was some kind of a hoax. No, he resurrect, resurrected. And listen, not in the same way as he was before he died. I mean, he's still Jesus, he's still the, the Son of God. He's still divine, but physically, his body, completely different. Resurrected, in fact. To a new glorified body, and in doing that, he secured the promise of the gospel for you and I, that we too will be resurrected from the dead one day, amen, hello, hallelujah, and to new bodies, glorified, resurrected bodies. I can't imagine. Jen and I were praying about it through a devotion, I think, yesterday morning, and just the whole idea of, you know, when we're in heaven, he is the light of the world. Th- there is no sun, there is no darkness. There... Everything is... Amazing in Christ. So Paul then goes on, because that third point is so important, to make sure that we understand, guys, there's proof. There's absolute proof that Jesus rose from the dead. This is not pie in the sky, some mystical thing. The the, the men in particular that were there on that day, probably a lot of women too, but of the apostles that were there on that day, many of them, 11 of the 12, gave their lives because they would not deny and denounce the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the third point of the gospel. Paul goes on and says, well, look it. And, and, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And so some of you might be saying, hold on a second. And this is true. Some people, I've read this and wait, there's a question there. I thought Mary and some of the women were the first to see Jesus alive at the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. That's true. Paul doesn't actually say here that uh, the apostles or Cephas, Peter, and the 12 were first. Paul again is speaking about those who were the primary preachers and proclaimers of the gospel in those early days. And that's whom he's highlighting at this point. He's not trying to uh, 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 make us not think of the women who were at the tomb. So a special note, though, on this verse that I think is really important is, and I love this about Paul, is like, and again, this is, this is thrown out there to the skeptic. It's beautiful. And, and that is in his day that he's writing this, right? And those words that he uses, most of whom are still alive. Why did he say that? Well, he said, listen, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. They're still here. They saw him 500 at one time. Now, some of them have died. But most of them are still here. Verse 7, he says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. That's that's actually a beautiful nod there, um, because James is the stepbrother of Jesus in this case. And uh, we know from Scripture that most of his siblings did not believe he was the Son of God when he was on earth, right? And you can imagine, right? Um, He's your brother. Uh, whether you're a woman or a man, and you're kind of like, <laughs> I, I saw him, like he didn't sin, but man, the Son of God, the Messiah, I don't know. He couldn't throw a baseball. Okay, I mean, seriously. James, however, had a change of heart. And Paul um, acknowledges that because when he appeared specifically to his stepbrother, James changed. You read the opening to his epistle, pretty clear. He calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his brother. And he changed him significantly. And then, of course, Paul leaves himself the last, and with great humility he says these words. Last of all, I'm the last one he appeared to. That's an important point. As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, For I am the least of apostles, the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Listen, even in his own day, Paul was considered a bit of a hard preacher. You know, there were people who preferred Apollos. He just made me feel a lot better about myself. (laughs) I don't know if that's kind of more eloquent, a little gentler, softer kind. There's all kinds of different preachers out there. They're all good if they're preaching the gospel. Paul was considered hard, not only a hard preacher, but somewhat Hard to understand in some respects. But the reality is, and the rest of the apostles would attest to this, he was a very humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was an incredible servant. Planted a lot of churches. Left us with some amazing testimonies of truth that we can read about like we are today. I love the fact that he says, he sees himself by saying, I am the least. It's not like I was, right? He still sees himself that way. Come on, that's humility. And why? Why did he see him that? He still had a a twinge of guilt. He remembers that I persecuted the church, guys. I did do that. He's continually confessing this. That's a good thing. But then he met grace, verses 10 and 11. But by the grace of God, I am what I am are you here today and able to say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm no better or, quite frankly, worse than anyone else. But I'm, I just am what I am. And that's good enough, in Jesus' opinion. He died for you. He saved you. That's really awesome. And his grace toward me was not in vain. And I love what he ends with. So listen, whether then it was I or they... other preachers of the gospel, so we preach, and so you believed. And so, friends, I I want to leave us with this thought this morning as we leave and we press on as a family in these days and times. May we be encouraged as a church what the gospel is. May we dream big. (laughs) May we have incredible visions for what God wants us to do in this community to reach the lost. May we serve this community in ways that are on some of your hearts. That's awesome. May we also remember what's of first importance. What's of very first importance. And may I encourage you that when you are sharing the gospel with the next person you share the gospel with, that you start with the words, Jesus died for your sins. Personalize it. It might lead to a really amazing gospel conversation. Pray with me, would you?